This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You know, I get true crime news that's weird, and then I get true crime news that's really weird. This comes out of Texas, so that part did not surprise me. The main source for this that I found is uh, Jessica Schulberg wrote an article for Huffington Post, and it popped up on August 7th of uh, 2023, so this year. This is a weird headline. It says, man sues lawyer after spending three and a half years in jail on tossed drunk driving charge. Then it says Houston lawyer Jerome Godinich has made millions carrying high caseloads of clients too, too poor to afford to hire a lawyer. Now he's being accused of malpractice. Did you see this article? I did. Okay, so I see things like this. And at first, okay, I'll, I'll say this. Huffington Post is a, is a totally fine source for this. Some of these things can sometimes appear skewed. So I'll look at them and then I'll go, oh, I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to cover that because I can't tell like what the, what the baseline for it is. But I will say this about uh, the, the author here, Jessica Schulberg, at least on the surface, it appears like she did a ton of research about this. And this case is crazy. So here's what it says. In 2018, Harris County, Texas, paid Jerome Godinich, and I don't know if I'm saying his name right, nor do I care based on this, a Houston-based defense lawyer, more than $409,000 to represent people who couldn't afford to hire a lawyer in 604 cases. So according to what she's saying, that's just 2018. So the 604 cases would have cost, on average, uh, about 800 bucks a case. So that's all the time he's spending with these people. But he somehow makes $409,000 in one year as a basically drawing public defender or indigent cases because they're assigning these, like, I guess they're uh, misdemeanors and, and infractions, right? Well, I think so, but it seemed like he might have had some more serious cases. But um, he is, and he's not a public defender. He is a... Appointed attorney. He's a defense lawyer who, um, I guess they're short on public defenders. And so he gets appointed and he plays that role. But I'm sure it's under contract somehow. But I just want to point that out. So, okay, the way this works in some jurisdictions is they will literally have lawyers uh, that are being appointed by judges. And usually it's in district court. It's not in superior court. And those lawyers may have minimal trial time. And this is sort of how they get some more trial time, working as the equivalent of an appointed public defender. And I've, I've seen this in a lot of jurisdictions. I've run up against it since like the mid-90s. I've had a really good perspective on it. This guy seems to be taking advantage of that. But then maybe, maybe not. I mean, uh, this particular case is egregious that we're talking about here. So well, there, are, there are some good sides of 
like the concept there, right? Right. As far as people needing attorneys and um, people that are defense attorneys who are not public defenders are willing to take on cases for what a lot less than what uh, they would be uh, charging if it was like a private situation, right? Yeah. And a lot of times it's so they can get trial experience. Like it's really so they can be in front of judges making their arguments and getting to know. I mean, I hate to say it this way, but a lot of stuff that happens in the courthouse happens because defense attorneys know the prosecuting attorneys and they know the judges and the clerks and everybody sort of works together to keep the ball moving forward. Not always the best thing for clients that way, but at first glance, Jerome, he has a reputation of taking on more cases than one lawyer could reasonably handle. So we know he's taken on too many cases. 604 cases in a year is a lot, but it's only you know, it's only a few cases a day if you work the weekends and you do what you're supposed to be doing. However, his caseload does exceed the state and federal guidelines on cases. Judges, many of whom received multiple campaign donations from Jerome, kept sending him cases. One of the clients that Jerome was appointed to defend in 2018 was a 66-year-old man named Michael Carter. Michael Carter is being held without bail on a driving while intoxicated or a DWI charge. For three years, Jerome was representing Carter, but he never visited his client and he did minimal work on his case. And that's according to a malpractice suit that the author dug up here. It was filed on Thursday by Michael Carter. By the time Carter's case was finally dismissed and he was released from jail, he had become a country music song. He lost his truck, his credit, his ability to work, and his wife died while he was incarcerated. Carter said in a statement about the suit, which accuses Jerome Godinich of violating legal and professional standards of representation, I just don't want anyone to go through what I've been through, to sit there every day in jail for years and never hear from your lawyer. Nobody deserves that. So Jerome has been licensed to practice law in Texas since 1987. He has no public disciplinary history, and he did not respond to the authors of this article uh, for requests for comments. Michael Carter was arrested on July 10th of 2018, and he was charged with one count of felony driving while intoxicated. According to the malpractice suit, he was neither driving nor intoxicated at the time of his arrest. He was asleep in his car without his keys in the ignition. The first lawyer who was appointed to represent Carter, who could not afford to hire the lawyer of his choosing, retired in November of 2018. So just a few months later, this guy retires, and Jerome is assigned to take over the case. Carter received only four visits from a member of Jerome's team during the three years he was represented by them. Never from Jerome himself, according to this complaint. The first visit was by a legal assistant who came more than eight months after Jerome was appointed to the case in December 2018. Although Carter repeatedly tried calling and writing to Jerome, he was never able to get a response. He believes that his lawyer's phone was not set up to take the collect calls from the jail. That's a, that, at least that's a, what it says in this complaint here. Michael Carter wrote letters to Jerome Godinich asking him to request an independent test of the blood sample taken when he was arrested. Carter does not know whether Jerome complied with this, but the lawyer never shared this information about any such test, according to this complaint. 
Carter also advised Jerome to contact several potential witnesses who could testify on his behalf and to file several motions, none of which happened. When Michael Carter's sister tried to intervene, Jerome told her that he had already done everything Carter requested. Any reasonable lawyer representing Carter would have at minimum regularly met with Carter confidentially, discussed the facts and law with Carter, developed a legal theory to defend Carter's case, sought to have the blood sample independently tested, investigated witnesses, sought speedy resolution of the case, and performed numerous other legal tasks to advance Carter's interests, the complaint said. On information and belief, Jerome Godinich did none of these things. The stakes were high for Carter. He was on parole. When he was arrested and if convicted of the DWI charge, he risked being sent back to prison for decades. The only options for representing Carter would either be to get the case dismissed or to take it to trial, according to this complaint. Michael Carter tried to advance his case on his own, and in February of 2020, more than a year after Jerome was appointed to the case, Carter wrote to the court that he'd been unable to discuss the case with his lawyer. He filed more than 15 motions on his own, and he even sought to have Jerome replaced. While his case languished, Carter was struggling in jail. His walking cane was taken away from him, and that forced him to limp around in pain and eventually to use a wheelchair. Michael Carter, who has high blood pressure and high cholesterol, remained in jail during the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, causing him to experience additional fear and isolation. On February 15, 2022, after more than three and a half years in jail, Carter told the judge that Jerome had never asked for his side of the story. When he explained that the keys were not in the ignition when the police approached him and that there was a significant delay between his arrest and blood testing, the case was dismissed. Carter's case cannot be proven beyond a reasonable doubt at this time. It's what the case records adjudication states. Carter learned his case was dismissed from the bailiff. His own lawyer never even told him. Jerome Godinitz has filed for payment for just eight out-of-court hours of work on Carter's case, despite representing him for three years. Okay, I'm going to pause on that for a second. He's represented this guy for three years, and he's only filed for eight hours. What do you think about that? I think that he's stealing eight hours worth of work. I mean, in three years, I would think that would only be for court appearances on a felony DWI. It would be more than that if he was really doing any work on the court appearances, but I'm sure he's in there on multiple cases at a time. Well, that's usually how that works. So Michael Carter believes they spoke about five times, always during court dates, never in a confidential setting where they could discuss any type of strategy. And Jerome Godinitz and his colleagues have ignored several requests from Carter for his case file, according to this complaint. When he was finally freed from jail, Carter returned home to a very different existence than the one he had left. He couldn't work while he was in jail, so he'd fallen behind on payments for his car, his house, and his credit card. His wife died while he was incarcerated. He was not allowed to attend her funeral. He now lives with his sister because he cannot afford his own place. So Carter lost everything as a result of this case and the deficient representation from Godinich. Although Harris County has a public defender's office, the overwhelming majority of felony cases are handled by private lawyers who are appointed by the judge overseeing the case. While lawyers in the public defender's office follow national caseload guidelines, these advise lawyers not to take more than 150 felony cases in a year, by the way, many private lawyers do not. Because private lawyers are paid per case, there's an incentive to take on as many cases as possible to maximize their income. 
2020 study found that judges appoint more than twice as many indigent cases to private lawyers who donate to judicial campaigns than those who don't, creating the optics of a pay-to-play system. A 2013 evaluation of the then newly established Harris County Public Defender's Office found that their lawyers outperformed appointed attorneys with every measure as they achieved a greater proportion of dismissals, deferred sentences, and acquittals, and a smaller proportion of clients being found guilty. As the Huffington Post has previously reported, the Harris County Public Defender's Office does not take any death penalty cases. Instead, indigent defendants facing the prospect of execution rely on the appointment system, where the judge handpicks the lawyer, who may be juggling hundreds of other cases. And in my mind, Meg, I don't know what you think about that, but that is the opposite of the way things are supposed to happen. I can, uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. Um, the judge picks who's going to represent. Uh, on, a, on a death penalty case. Now, okay, and so it's questionable, but I'd like to think that the reason that happens is because the judge wants to make sure that a person facing the death penalty is going to have a competent attorney. I think most capital defenders' offices are competent attorneys overall. Well, I mean, I, I'm just saying I would say that's probably a kink in that system, but... Well, it's definitely something. Uh, the way they closed out this article is in 2018, Harris County paid Jerome Godnich to work on 583 felony cases, one misdemeanor, six felony appeals, and 14 capital cases. That's according to the Texas Indigent Defense Commission, who tracks the attorney caseloads. Capital cases are so labor-intensive that a separate Texas public defender's office that specializes in them recommends attorneys have no more than five active capital cases at a time and no additional felony cases. So that's five cases where the punishment could end, uh, could, could be death. And he had 14 uh, yeah, he had 14 in an area where they recommend no more than five at a time. Uh, by the time Jerome was appointed to Carter's case in 2018, he had already attracted attention for his high caseload. And in 2009, the Houston Chronicle reported that two of Godness's clients on death row lost their federal appeals because he missed filing deadlines. In each case, he blamed a broken filing machine, an excuse that prompted criticism from the fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. But that didn't stop judges from continuing to assign Godinich hundreds of indigent cases each year. Mr. Carter sat in jail for years without receiving even basic representation from his attorney, and Harris County taxpayers still wrote that attorney a check. And that's from Jeff Burkhart, the executive director of the Texas Fair Defense Project, whose lawyer is representing Carter in the malpractice suit. Last year, Harris County paid attorneys over $30 million for felony representation. Yet, with the exception of the public defender's office, which handles just a fraction of the cases, there is little attorney oversight. Harris County needs a robust, independent public defense system. Which, I have to agree with like what's being said there at the end by Mr. Burkhart. It is wild to me to think that that much of the criminal justice system in that area is what I would call running amok. I don't think it's just that area. No, I'm I'm just being as polite. Look, defense attorneys are overworked for the most part. I understand that. But the truth is, 
a good defense attorney has a good staff backing him up. And like some of that would not be quite as crazy in my opinion, in a public defender's office, because public defender's offices, while they can still be stretched to the limits based on resources, they tend to get staffed up with good attorneys who are looking for trial experience, good investigators and legal assistants who help with the administrative side of things. I don't know that all, private attorneys necessarily do that. And that's where the criticism comes in. But 14 or 15 capital cases at one time is not good. It's not good. And, you know, that was with no additional felony cases. And he had 583 additional felony cases to the 14 capital cases. Yeah, that's two a day if he's working every single day on on felony cases, like seven days a week. It's just crazy. Now... Okay, so for for the most part, uh, this is a this guy fell through the cracks, right? The cracks may be very large, and there may be quite a few people falling through them, but without question, this guy fell through the cracks. And this doesn't even address the fact that a man that was arrested on a felony driving while intoxicated charge sat in jail pre-trial for three and a half years. That should, bo- that should bother everybody. Now, this guy's on parole. I want to point that out. That changes things a little bit. That's fine. But ultimately, the charges were dismissed. And sitting in jail pre-trial means that, you know, you've been alleged to have done something. Uh, I assume he couldn't make bail, right? And it hasn't been adjudicated yet. That is not supposed to be a punishment, Absolutely. And three and a half years is entirely too long for what was alleged and for it to have been dismissed like it was. That is a huge like system failure. And that's not going to get fixed with just making a couple changes here and there. I I hate it that it's gotten to that point, but I don't know what else he could have possibly did. It sounds like he was really trying hard, like filing motions and things like that on his own, attempting to get himself, you know, try to get himself some help. But everybody should look at that. Every person involved in that entire situation should look at that and say, this guy sat in jail for three and a half years pre-trial and then his charges got dismissed. I mean, that's something that should not occur. No, it, it shouldn't occur. And, you know, it's funny because, like, I'm reading parts of this complaint as I'm kind of strolling through and, and reading them. I hate to say this, but I also think this complaint is unrealistic because, like, some of the things that I just read off that were pulled for that article, I don't think that's a realistic expectation uh, that all those things are happening in every case. And, and like, that's me being as nice as humanly possible. What do you mean? What do you mean? Like, like when, when, when the article, I mean, when the complaint states that like these 10 things should be happening, I don't know that they happen in the majority of cases. Oh, I see. I, I don't have the complaint in front of me, but I assume I would say that while DUI is a felony, this was a felony charge three and a half years pretrial, uh, is not acceptable for any nonviolent crime. I would say. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would. I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree. Like, as far as not, yeah, unless it's something where 
I would say nonviolent crimes and then non mm, public interest crimes where like if you've got somebody that's stolen two billion dollars or something, I could see them I could see them spending some time in jail while well, they hopefully sort of, if they stole two billion well, they would get bail for a financial crime more than likely. Oh, sure they would. And they would be able to post it because they stole all that money. This guy, and you know, I don't, it doesn't mention, does it mention in the complaint what his bail was? It was without bail. It was a remand hold. Because he was on parole? Yeah. Okay, well, that's a very simple fix. They need to put a time limit on, like, they can be held this long without bail. I think it would agree with you there. Uh, that That is a, it seems to be something uh, that would have been unintended by whatever legislation is holding him there for that long without bail. It seems like that's that couldn't possibly what be what uh, they were trying to accomplish there with the law. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that they would want somebody to, because when you're sitting in jail pre-trial, it's just you have an allegation with charges against you. That's it. And I don't, I don't know when the point in time it is that it can only be viewed as a punishment. I would say if it exceeds or approaches what you would get if you were found guilty, maybe. It's a relatively short period of time you should be confined without an adjudication, in my opinion, for a nonviolent crime. Like I said, I don't know what he was on parole for. I, I don't know what other factors come into play here. Just reading the article, like this guy fell through the cracks and the lawyer should be ashamed of themselves. And I kind of doubt the lawyer is. And that makes me think that like the lawyer doesn't get it. The judges that are assigning this lawyer cases they don't get it. Like, and so that's just, it's almost like a lost cause to me because if you can't explain to judges and attorneys why this situation is wrong, who could you possibly explain it to? Yeah, I, I, I can see where you're coming from there. I, when I look at all this, I, so many people would be in such trouble if the legal system collapsed on itself and situations like this are the type of situations that could cause that to happen, I think. Well, and the fact that the charges were ultimately dismissed, which means he was found, they were dismissed. Like he, it didn't even go through a trial process. Right. Right. And so that's, I mean, there'll be, it'll be that he, you know, was alleged to have done it, but the charges are dismissed. And so all of that was for nothing. Yeah, it really was. And so I feel like this is one of those situations where somebody needs to be paying more attention. I don't know who exactly. I would say that being held without bail, whatever the stipulations involved in that probably should be reconsidered. Um, I do understand there are situations where people need to be held without bail. And like, as long as, you know, if, if the legislation has said it, that's fine. I just, I can't imagine a situation where they intended for somebody in this particular situation to have that 
rained upon them. Uh, so maybe they'll fix it. Uh, the other thing would be, I would say malpractice is probably fitting in this case. I feel like the attorney probably did commit malpractice because I don't see how they could justify it otherwise. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you that, well, what's weird is he's not even going to, like his insurance is going to cover whatever claim comes from this. And that's well, really- sure. And I mean, I'm not saying he intentionally like takes money and then doesn't do work on these cases. I'm sure that he is completely overloaded, and he probably does a good amount of work. It's just he takes on too many cases, right? Yeah. And he probably doesn't have any idea the damage he's doing, which is, of course is the reason to bring a lawsuit like this, right? But also. I find people in positions that can do this sometimes don't realize that they shouldn't do things like this, which would be, you know, he's got judges that he supports financially because they're elected and they have to campaign. And because he supports them financially, they appoint him these cases, which, I mean, for $800 a pop, I mean... That's not something a defense attorney is really, like, looking for, right? Yeah. But it sort of shows in the results that we see in just this one case. Now, I don't know anything about this attorney except what has been laid out here for us. But I would say that it may take a civil suit kind of bringing him down a notch. But I doubt very seriously that's going to happen. Uh, And a lot of people, because I would have been one of these people at some point in life, they wouldn't pay attention to this kind of thing because it couldn't happen to them, right? Yeah. But, and, and, you know, hopefully it couldn't or it wouldn't happen to most people. But this guy had no idea that he was about to lose three and a half years of his life, right? Well, yeah, and that sort of leads into what I wanted to talk about next. Do you have anything else on this one? I mean, my Michael Carter's situation is going to work itself out in court now. He's already lost pretty much everything. I don't think there's anything else we can do. You know what I mean? Like, there's not much else other than the malpractice possibility and some compensation. That's really, I agree. you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, I look at all of this and I think to myself, the attorneys getting into this situation doesn't happen on their own. Um, and I think of situations where truly innocent or what is considered, you know, truly innocent people, they end up stuck for long periods of time, not three and a half years, but much longer periods of time. And we all like, we all know different cases where people have been held for long periods of time. And I wanted to talk about one leading up to, uh, the next serial killer, because I like to cover these serial killer cases. I sometimes like to cover serial killer cases that go against the norms. And that's where we're headed with this one. And if you already know this case, uh, I'm starting out with, with a wrongful conviction that came out of a serial killer case. And it's a pretty fascinating one. Have you heard of this case before when we started looking at it? Only vaguely. Okay. So, this stems back to a crime on September 30th of 1979. And it's an unusual crime for a, a number of reasons. And, you know, the Innocence Project now has this case up. 
Uh, I know it's on like the National Registry of Exonerations. There's a lot to be said about like this case and sort of the other cases that surround it. What was interesting to me and what like caught my eye about this case is a very old article by a woman named Heather Buchanan. And I don't know if it's still on the internet. At one point it was. Uh, what I have of it is like a, is a hard copy. The article of from Heather Buchanan talks about the reliability of eyewitnesses. Have you ever looked into like eyewitnesses in general? We kind of talk about them here, but not so much. Yeah, eyewitnesses are like generally unreliable. Yeah, it's it's become a thing where well, and we live in an interesting age where I would say eyewitness testimony is a part of a puzzle that typically has to be backed up by like DNA and by almost video. Like, well, I was going to say video uh, eyewitness uh, evidence is different, but if you have just a person uh, recounting, a lot of times those can be like not nefariously or anything, but like they're inaccurate. Yeah. And there's a, like, it's, there's actually like a whole science to this now, even though I'm going to use her article, I do want to talk just for a minute about like bystander testimony. So bystander testimony is when an eyewitness is talking in court or to an officer to make a report that's going to become a part of those paper trails we talk about. That's going to become a part of an investigation and going to become a part of how they develop leads. Now, the reliability of eyewitness testimony has been questioned going all the way back to 1908. Uh, There's a book uh, by Hugo Munsterberg. It's, It's a relatively controversial book called On the Witness Stand. And that book talks about how eyewitnesses are not to be trusted. His ideas gain popularity with the public, but it's a really controversial book in terms of prosecutors, other eyewitnesses, and uh, judges. They do not appreciate his take that people in the stand uh, should not be trusted. Now, he's operating under what would be known later as applied cognitive psychology. And today, a lot of the things that happen with cognitive psychology technically fall under pseudoscience. But there are scientific studies of all these mental processes. Uh, You can study people's attention, their language use, their memory, their perception, their problem solving, their creativity, their reasoning. A lot of these things can be measured. Recall is not necessarily the best uh, thing to measure of a person's memory. In fact, while uh, Hugo Munsterberg's ideas got a little bit of uh, popularity with the public and none with the legal community, decades later, DNA testing would start to prove that individuals that had been convicted on the basis of errant eyewitness testimony. So that means people were starting to like look at cases where DNA proves someone committed a rape or committed a murder, um, as, as far as we can tell. Uh, it's DNA that's under the fingernails or that comes from fluids left at the scene or inside or on a body. When that begins to happen and we see these DNA-based exonerations, we see that a lot of them, according to the book Actual Innocence, which is it's pretty old now, it's probably like 20 years old, a lot of those wrongful convictions come about because of bad eyewitness evidence. I cannot think of like, like in my head, like what would the worst 
type of uh, eyewitness evidence be? And I think uh, a situation where a husband is being or, or a wife, a spouse is being accused of killing their spouse, where it's found out later that uh, based on bad eyewitness testimony, that it didn't happen the, the way it was thought to have happened and, and years go by. I think that's the worst situation I could think of. Um, or and, if they killed their own, they were alleged to have killed their unborn child. Yeah, that's where I was headed with this. I think if it's a child, that's actually the the only thing that I could come up with that would be worse than that is killing a child. But uh, this situation tops everything I could think of, and that is that your spouse thinks you are the one. Uh, and I think that's absolutely like the worst thing that I can think of. In, in this instance, on September 30th, 1979, Kevin Lee Green went on a hamburger run to a nearby Jack in the Box in Tustin, California. He returned home around 1.30 a.m. to find that his pregnant wife, Diana Green, was unconscious, suffering from a severe blow to her forehead. She was rushed to a hospital where an obstetrician was able to detect a fetal heartbeat. But within a few hours, the placenta detached and their daughter died in the womb. An emergency C-section to remove the deceased daughter saved Diana's life. But whatever relief Green could find in his wife's survival was extinguished when he was arrested three months later for assault with a deadly weapon and second-degree murder due to the death of his nearly full-term daughter. A cashier at the Jack in the Box confirmed Green's alibi, and police reports noted that the hamburgers were still warm when the first responders arrived at the scene. Green reported seeing an African-American man loitering in the apartment complex as he left to get the hamburgers, yet Green went on trial when his wife identified him as the perpetrator. After the attack, Diana Green, and I'll, I'll say this, this is a really old article I'm pulling from, but she goes by a different name during most of these proceedings. I don't know if you had seen that with what was going on here. Um, but Diana Green suffered months of severe amnesia and aphasia, which is a loss or impairment of the power to use and comprehend words. The brain damage from the trauma had been so severe that when the court, when the trial went to court a year after the incident, she still had trouble giving coherent testimony, and she struggled to even spell her own last name for the court record. The main argument that was made by the prosecution was circumstantial evidence that the Greens had had a, a fight the night of the assault. The prosecutor told the jury that Kevin Green resented that he could not have sex with his wife so late in her pregnancy, and he even complained about it to her friends. Neighbors remembered hearing what they thought was the 21-year-old Marine Corporal. So this guy's 21 years old when this happens. And his 20-year-old wife fighting on the night of the attack. And they noted that the couple fought often during the course of their less than seven-month marriage. Diana recalled Green hitting her with his keys. All right. I'm just going to say this. 21-year-old people have all sorts of things going on in their world. This guy's a Marine, and he's married to this woman. I don't remember a lot of people when I was 21 being married. Do you? 
No. But it was, this was in 1979, so. Yeah, but even now, like, I think about, I, and I'm, I don't know if you think about the same things. I think about some of my married friends now, and I don't think, I don't think I would necessarily know if any of them were in abusive situations, but I know I would not have known when I was 20. Unless I saw it, I would have been completely oblivious to it having happened. Oh, I agree. Yeah. By all accounts, the Greens, who are 20 and 21 years old, respectively, they have a rocky marriage from the very beginning. They were married. And this is the part that's like really going to mess with you. They were married on the same day that Kevin's divorce from his first marriage came through. What, what do you think of that? She was nine and a half months pregnant. Okay, so she was three months pregnant when they get married. And they were married for seven months. So I assume, uh, well, just a casual observation would be like out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, you're going from a marriage that didn't work to a marriage with a kid. I think it's being done out of obligation. Would you say that's probably accurate? I would say that, uh, that, I mean, he's 21, so... I'm going to go with, yeah, probably. Okay. So the idea is that Kevin Green at the time wanted to be like his dad. He wanted to continue a military career and raise a family. Prosecutors presented forensic evidence of rape at the time of the attack, including semen that they had in vaginal slides. So basically a rape kit had been done on her and they presented now, DNA fingerprinting techniques were first developed in 1984, so that's going to be after Kevin Green's case. The analysis of the genetic material would not have been common at the time to be used in criminal investigations. So semen back then is not going to connect a specific perpetrator to a specific crime. Diana insisted that her husband was the person who had hit her. And that was the only evidence that linked Kevin Green to the crime of assaulting his wife. The prosecution used a psychiatrist named Dr. Martin Brenner to assert that Diana Green was a reliable witness. The defense was denied a request to bring in an independent psychiatric professional or psychiatrist to evaluate her mental state. So the jury goes out, and after 10 hours of deliberation, they come back, and they find Kevin Green guilty. And they sentence him to 15 years to life. I just realized something. What? The, the doctor in this case, if this is accurate. Martin it, Brenner? Yeah. Isn't that the doctor's name from Stranger Things? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I just, I, while I'm sitting here, I realized that. So 10 hours of deliberation, the jury finds Kevin Green guilty, and he's sentenced to 15 years to life. And I'm not surprised by that. Are you? No, I was not super surprised by what happened there, no. Because if you've got the uh, victim of a crime telling you that her husband did it, it's going to be really hard to ignore that. Yeah, I, I think it would be hard to ignore it. I think you get a sympathy conviction if you have no other way 
At least at that time, it seems like you would. I feel like a jury would say, well, I mean, she's not going to say it wasn't him if she's not sure it wasn't him. I, yeah, I, I just don't think with that kind of TBI, like that kind of traumatic brain injury, I don't think, uh, and I don't think it would be reliable. That's, that's my personal. But I don't think, I feel like once the psychiatrist indicated that it was reliable. Yeah. Once she says it was him, they are going to take her word for it, especially since the defense wasn't allowed to counter that, right? Yeah. So they all they've got is expert testimony that what she's saying is okay um, or reliable or however they put it, right? Yeah. Um, and so she also, she had, she recounted at least part of what happened to her. Yeah, she told a story, and I actually believed it could be a memory. Like, I, I know we're kind of going down this path towards, like, unreliable. I like, okay, it's difficult for me to defend somebody in his position at this point because I believe she could be telling a true story that isn't about the assault. Well, and I think that he admitted that, like, they were not in a great relationship as far as like I, I don't know that he was a like physically abusive but it was alleged and I don't think he denied that you know they had had some altercations yeah and, and well, so it, it wasn't like from left field right it was it's not out of left field it's just that he you know there's the potential that he didn't do it and I, I want to give the timeline here for just a second so that you guys can understand like like how quickly all this takes place so she is hit the night of September 30th, 1979. He gets arrested October 2nd, 1980. He's convicted and sentenced on November 7th, 1980. So all of this takes place in less than six weeks. And just to be clear, he is convicted of second degree murder and of, that's of his right. uh, the of his baby that was unborn, attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. I have trouble wrapping my head around this case in a couple of different ways, but I want to point out this woman had a severe enough injury that he's he's charged with assault with a deadly weapon, and it causes the death of this unborn fetus. So all of this takes place where this guy gets a life sentence. And essentially, like a year and a month. Correct. Well, so, it was 15 years to life, but yes. Right. But I mean, they had a, a pretty, the idea there was not that he was going to get like an easy parole or anything like that. I don't feel like there is a situation, maybe if they had gotten the defense psychiatrist expert testimony in, possibly, but I feel like this case was a loser from the very beginning. I feel like it's it's very, very difficult for a, a jury to not believe a victim's testimony. I think I would agree with that. I think that's like that's one of the places that this would go so wrong for well, me. Particularly. She, was, she wasn't like, oh, it may have been him. Right. She was like, I remember him hitting me. And so she was very adamant in her uh, account of what happened. And I just 
it doesn't matter what the circumstances, what else is presented, it's going to be almost impossible for a jury panel to to hear her talk about that and not regard it as being what occurred. I would agree with that. And that's one of the problems that we run into here. And this article continues to point out the basic tenet of the U.S. justice system is that a person is innocent until proven guilty. But when you have convictions like this one, that sort of turns things on, on their head. And, and like I was saying, I felt like the, the, the Texas case that we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, I felt like there's some naivete in the complaint where it's not wrong. It's saying what should be expected. But for those to be realistic expectations or the idea that you're actually innocent until proven guilty to be completely realistic, I think that's a little naive. I think that the jurors are reasonable people, but I think overall, even the most unemotional person would be influenced in a case where you've got a mother who's lost a child beaten by her husband saying, he beat me. I think that it would be very difficult to overcome like anything there and and to kick that case. Oh, I, I it really, it never stood a chance. Yeah, and the jurors said the evidence was at best weak. In this case, there's not a whole lot of evidence. Like the DNA, if there had been DNA at the scene or fingerprints at the scene, a lot of it's going to match. It's going to be a huge deal. Uh, Green, however, after he's convicted and sent to prison, he continues to say that he is innocent from his prison cell. He requests and he passes uh, a polygraph test. Although it is it is admitted that like it's a defense administered polygraph test, he was unable to afford a DNA test that might reopen his case. When five years later DNA comes along and it's it's like the first of a new thing. Now, with the goal of overturning wrongful convictions and overhauling the criminal justice system in 1992, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfill found what's known as the Innocence Project, and this is a nonprofit that was created after findings released by the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Senate in conjunction with uh, Cardozo School of Law showed that eyewitness misidentification played a part in more than 70% of wrongful convictions. Within these wrongful convictions, other major and worrisome patterns were evident. 70% of the people freed by the Innocence Project belonged to ethnic minorities, and almost all of them were poor. These statistics underscore systematic flaws, flaw or flaws, in identifying, deposing, trying, and convicting suspects. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who was a renowned cognitive psychologist, and Catherine Ketchum, they wrote about misled memory in the book, The Myth of Repressed Memory, False Memories and Allegations of Sexual Abuse. They began by comparing the human mind to a bowl of clear water, and they asked us to imagine memories as teaspoons of milk added to the bowl as experiences and years go by. The more memories that become mixed into the water, the murkier the mind gets, making it harder to distinguish each of them separately. So memories don't sit in one place waiting patiently to be retrieved. They drift through the mind more like clouds or vapor than something we put our hands around. Although scientists don't like to use words like spirit or soul, I must admit that memories are more of a spiritual than a physical reality, like the wind or breath of steam rising. The cirrus and stratus of memory exist, but when you try to touch them, 
they turn into mist and disappear. Disappear, And that's from Elizabeth Lofton. That's her quote there. She's a distinguished professor of social ecology at the University of California at the time of this article. She goes on to explain how fragile memories can be. And she notes that experiments conducted with thousands of subjects over the course of her career, she's been conducting these experiments. She recalls times when she was able to mold people's memories, motivating them to recall things that did not exist and non-existent circumstances. She has been able to implant false memories in people's minds, making them believe in characters who never existed and events that never happened. Which, by the way, that is terrible to me to think Isn't of. Isn't it? Yeah. So eyewitness testimony is neither perfect nor fixed and can even be influenced by extraneous sources. When a memory is reconstructed, people often use prior knowledge, their own expectations and attitudes to fill in inevitable gaps. Information that comes from an eyewitness can be easily influenced intentionally or unwittingly, without the witness even realizing it. However, juries tended to rely heavily on this type of evidence during deliberations and are not likely to discredit it, which is exactly what you're saying. Like, there's something very difficult about discrediting all of this. It would be like telling a person who's experienced a terrible, terrible thing that they are lying. Yeah. And it's just, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's almost like you have to have proof to disprove the proof mm-hmm. and, or, or you just kind of let it go. In Green's case, the jury found it hard to believe his corroborated cheeseburger alibi against his own wife's testimony. Um, so there's a little bit of something to that. He initially went to the Jack in the Box like right across the road from where he lived. Yeah. And uh, the story is that... There were too many cars in the like drive through It was completely just, it was swamped with people. And so he ended up driving to a jack-in-the-box in the box that was like a little bit further away. And that did not set well with the investigators because it didn't make sense to, ha- the, to them why he wouldn't just wait there at that jack-in-the-box. Quite frankly, it doesn't really make sense to me either, but that was what happened. He really wanted that cheeseburger. And he wanted it quickly. Uh, clearly. And I it, think it sounds a little bit like BS. It does. It sounds shady. It sounds so shady. And I hate it for him because he was just being honest. But it does. It doesn't make any sense that you would drive across the street and be like, there's too many cars here. I'm going to the next one. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. But he said that that's what happened because he was gone for like, I think he was gone for about 40 minutes total. And that, that was a long time to have just gone across the street. And the reason it was so long was because uh, wherever he drew, you know, it would have had to have been, I mean, I imagine 10 or 15 minutes away at least for it to be another one of the exact same restaurant. Right. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. So he drove, you know, 15 minutes there 10 minutes to order 15 minutes back or whatever. Right. Yeah. I think they thought it was him establishing his own alibi and letting her die out. Well, right. And it, it sounds like it is honestly. I mean, but we find out it's, that's not the case, but that's what it sounds like he's doing. Yeah. So according to this article, recent studies of severe closed head injury or CHIs, show that damage to the prefrontal lobes not only causes memory loss, but also heightens susceptibility to creating false memories. 
that could easily have been the case with Green's wife was the point of this. Uh, one recent study, which was by uh, Reason Marks at the University of Memphis, it reported that survivors of closed head injuries are not only more likely to acquire false memories, they're more likely to feel confident those memories are true. So they believe them. And when they testify, they come across as believable. Even though it's a, like, like technically it's a, it's a false statement they're making, that's not how they come across. They give us a few things here of some cases of note. And I'm going to go over those and then we're going to kind of wrap up this episode today uh, with a couple of questions uh, and, and comments. So the first case they bring up is the Charles Clark case. Are you familiar with that one, Matt? It's, a, it's an old one. I don't think so. Okay. In 1937, Charles Clark was convicted of armed robbery and murder based on identification by a store owner's adult daughter. 30, 30 years later, it was revealed that the woman could not at first identify Clark, but police had pointed him out to her saying they believed he was a guilty party. And in 1968, a Detroit Bar Association committee designed to provide legal aid to the poor, which is now called legal aid all over the place, and the Defender Association of Detroit began handling criminal cases. Clark was among its first cases, and researchers soon discovered that the sole witness was originally unable to identify Clark as the assailant and had admitted that detectives pointed him out to her during the lead up to the lineup. So Clark was granted a new trial and the case was dismissed on a motion of, of the prosecutor. So four years after his release in the 70s, the state of Michigan awarded him $10,000 for having spent three decades in prison. In 1961, an assailant entered the home of a New York doctor and fatally stabbed him. The doctor's wife was also stabbed 11 times and barely survived. While she was recuperating, police brought Theodore Stavali to the hospital and they asked her to identify him. Unlike a lineup where several similar people are presented to an eyewitness to have a suspect identified, Stavali was the only black man in the room. She agreed that he was the assailant and she later confirmed this identification in court and Stavali is convicted. The Federal Appeals Court ends up reversing this conviction on the grounds that Stavali's constitutional rights were violated when the physician's wife identified the accused in a show-up, which is where a defendant is brought, uh, but he's not uh, represented by counsel, for the specific purpose of being shown to, to the victim of a crime. His case goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it gets struck down, and that's going to be uh, Stavali versus Denno. There's a couple of, of those cases that you can go and read about. Probably the most famous one is this one. In 1984, a man broke into a woman's apartment and he sexually assaulted and robbed her. Ronald Cotton was arrested for these crimes. And in January of the following year, he was convicted of burglary and rape and sentenced to life plus 54 years based on identification by the victim and circumstantial evidence. A second victim identified a different man, but this evidence was not allowed at Cotton's trial. A man convicted of other rapes later confessed to the crime. That evidence was not allowed during Cotton's appeal. In 1994, Ronald Cotton was appointed two new lawyers who filed a motion for DNA testing, and semen from one of the victims matched the man who confessed to the crimes. And on June 30th of 1995, Ronald Cotton was finally released from prison. So I'm sure you see a pattern in what I'm talking about, right, Meg? I do. So... Um, I'll use one more, and that's um, the Barry Gibbs case, which is mentioned here. Uh, are you familiar with uh, the Barry Gibbs case? No. It's an interesting one. Uh, the Innocence Project had this one, and it goes sort of like this. 
1986, Barry Gibbs, a letter carrier and a Navy veteran, was convicted convicted of murdering a prostitute in Brooklyn and dumping her body off the Bell Parkway. A highly decorated New York City detective named Louis Eppolito found Gibbs' name among the prostitute's clients and identified him as the prime suspect. David Mitchell was a jogger who saw the body being dumped and picked Gibbs out of a lineup and testified for the prosecution. Gibbs ends up being convicted and sentenced to 20 years to life. 19 years later, Mitchell admitted that he had lied on the stand after Detective Eppolito threatened his family. In the words of Justice Michael Gary, who overturned Gibbs' conviction on September 29, 2005, Detective Eppolito induced Mitchell into identifying Barry Gibbs in a lineup in a court at trial. All the while, Mitchell believed and continues to believe that Barry Gibbs is not the person he saw disposing of the victim's body. Incidentally, the day Gibbs was released, Detective Louis J. Eppolito was under indictment for moonlighting as a hitman for the Lucchese crime family. He's now serving a life sentence in federal prison. All right. So those are all my examples of eyewitness identification being wrong for various reasons, whether it's false memories or inducement or whatever. What we have here is the case of Kevin Green assaulting his wife and causing the death of his unborn daughter. Where I'm going with this is Kevin Green didn't do this. I feel like given everything I've ever known about any crime case, it was actually statistically way more likely that her husband had done it, right? I tend to agree with you, yeah. Okay. You know, whether a seed was planted, whether she was having... um, you know, some sort of altered recall or like a different situation she was remembering. Whatever the situation, uh, whatever the circumstances of her testimony ended up being, I don't think uh, that anybody was being deceitful, right? I think it was coming from a place of like, she probably really believed he did it. And the police probably looked at the situation and said, like, you know, what are the chances he didn't do it, right? Yeah. Um, Especially once he had gone to the second restaurant, right? Um, It was just a weird collaboration of things happening. And it's, it's just one of those situations where, like, man, how could, how could so many, like, unfortunate events take place to culminate in this? I would agree with that. And like, it would be weird to me if this had been like a random like robbery and and that type of thing. But I don't think people are going to believe what happened next or how far it spiraled into true crime. But we'll bring that up on the next episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.
bottom of the ocean I have heard you call Wanted to sail upon your water Since I was three feet tall You've seen it all You've seen it all Watch the man who rode you Switch from sails to steam And in your belly you hold the treasure You have ever seen Most of them dream Most of them dream Yes, I am a pirate Two hundred years too late The cannons don't there's nothing to plunder I'm an early 40 victim of fate Arriving too late Arriving too late I've done a bit of smuggling I run my share of grass Made enough money to buy Miami But I pissed it away so fast to last never meant to last I've drowned 